Well, this is the first day of the new year, and as I mentioned before, a lot of times when we think of the new year, um, we spend kind of the end of, end of December thinking back on the, the year that we've just had, and we use the new year to think of the year that we're about to have and look into the future, right? We make all kinds of plans. This year, I'm going to, right? Going to is a future-looking phrase. I will. I'm going to. We're gonna. However you would say that. I'm going to go to the gym more. I'm going to read more. I'm going to write more. I'm going to um, spend more time with my family. I'm going to be better at work. Whatever that might be, you're looking into the future, right? You're looking into the next year and making plans for that year. Well, this morning, I want us to do that. I want us to look into the future, but not just to this year or the years to come or really any years on this world. Um, we're going to be looking forward into the, the next life, not this life, but the life to come. The Lord's Supper is, is a precious meal that we get to have um, that the Lord instituted for us, not just for us to look back on Christ's sacrifice for us, but to also look forward to the day when we will eat this with Eat this meal with the Lord again. In Matthew 26, Jesus says, um, uh, Until that day I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. Um, that's where we get this future-looking anticipation that this meal that we're going to have today is not just looking back, but looking forward to the day when we will have this meal with Christ in the future. But, I'll say this, in order to look forward into the future, we're actually going to go back into the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, and we're going to look there at a prophecy, um, at a passage that speaks of the Lord uh, that, that Jesus, I think, has in his mind as he's, as he's having this supper with his, with his disciples on those last days of his life here on this earth. As he was uh, having that supper, I think these... This passage may have been on his mind or what he was referring to. We're going to read the whole chapter here. Um, Isaiah chapter 25. If you're heading through the Old Testament, you get to Psalms, you need to go to the right. Should be the first prophet you see, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 25. We're going to read this whole chapter, just these uh, 12 verses. Says this, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap and a fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the strong and the ruthless is put down. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straws trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hand in the midst of, uh, in, in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hand to swim. Verse 6, and this is where we're going to focus. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make, all, make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will he will take away, take away from all the earth. 
for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. But the Lord will lay low his his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls. He will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground to the dust. I think I missed a few verses in there. No, I read them out of order, didn't I? Anybody catch it as I was reading? Okay, thank you. So, there you go. So yeah, when I printed this on the paper, it switched some verses around, but we'll, we'll take care of that. So as we read this passage, remember this is an Old Testament passage that I'm saying Jesus is probably referring to in the New Testament that points to the book of Revelation. Obviously, we're talking about prophecy here. Now, when we hear prophecy, this is probably what you think of, right? A quarterback with a ball throwing it down the field and that ball traveling all the distance and then a a receiver catching it in the end zone, right? That's how we think of prophecy, um, of a prophet saying something and then it has nothing to do with anybody else until, boom, it's fulfilled at the end. But that's not how prophecy works in the Bible. Prophecy is less like a Hail Mary pass and more like a snowball that starts small and it is fulfilled in one way. And then it's fulfilled again in a bigger way, in a more full way, and fulfilled again until its final culmination. And so we see in this passage, Jesus referring to this this idea of this feast that would happen. Isaiah, as he's writing, remember there's two authors in the Bible. There's the the man and, and God leading him. As Isaiah's writing this, he is referring to probably this moment in time. Um, as the Israelites are having issues with the Moabites, as you hear their name mentioned there. Isaiah is probably looking to see something like this happen in his day. He's thinking it's going to happen then. But we see as that's maybe fulfilled in one way in Isaiah, it's fulfilled in a greater way in Christ, and then in an even greater way as we reach the end of all things. But so as we read this, especially verses 6 through 9, we're going to see a few way, a few things that we can anticipate in the future. As we read these things, we can say, hey, this is what our future is going to be like as we eat this meal today together, this meal that that foreshadows what's coming. We can say, hey, this is what the future is going to be look like when we sit down with Christ to have this meal once again. Number one, the longings of life are satisfied. Number one, the longings of life are satisfied. In verse six, it says on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. So when we hear that, that idea of rich food, that's food that satisfies, right? Something that weighs heavy on you. The psalmist here describes salvation, this salvation as a celebration. He describes it as a feast that the Lord's going to make for all peoples. It's a feast that's full of the best foods, the choicest foods, the best foods that you can think of. It's like a Thanksgiving meal that you see in the movie that's spread out on a 20-foot table. And, and there's like three turkeys and like so, it's, the food is so perfect that your mouth just waters. And this is rich food. He mentions rich food with marrow, probably meaning a a meal with meat. That's Corbett's definition of a meal, right? A meal with meat, right? Um, A meal that would be sustaining and satisfying. A meal that would make you have to loosen your belt a few notches and take a nap and watch some... Watch some football in the afternoon. Uh, a meal uh, that would just satisfy you, that would make you feel like you'd never have to eat again, or at least not until the next morning, right? A meal that satisfies your hunger. A satisfying meal. And he also mentions well-aged wine. 
this wine that he's speaking of is a rich and full wine. It's the choicest wine, the best wine that you can find. Not watered down or cheap or anything. Um, wine is a, is a drink of celebration uh, in the Bible. It's used at weddings and other events. This was Jesus' first miracle was to turn water into a wine. And I think the wine in this verse points to the celebration and the victory that the Lord's going to have. So this meal that's prepared, remember, it's rich and satisfying and celebratory, this meal. It's going to satisfy all of our longings. And if we think of our lives, we have longings in this life, don't we? We have these pains, these empty things in our life. We have longings. You don't have to spend much time in life to realize that these longings go deep and hurt hard sometimes when they're not fulfilled. I'm not talking about the lusts of life, but the longings of life. The physical, emotional, and spiritual needs that we all have. And we have deep longings in our bodies and in our souls. We long to be loved and appreciated. We long to have meaning and purpose. We long to accomplish things, to do something that matters. We long to be good at the roles that we have, whether that's parent, child, spouse, worker, teacher, church member, whatever that might be. We want to do good at our jobs. We long to do those things well. We long to flourish and we long to have peace. Peace, the the Hebrew word shalom. And these things we know These longings that we have in our hearts for meaningfulness and purpose cannot be found in this life, ultimately. We have blessings in this life that are foretastes of what's to come, but ultimately the good things of this life cannot satisfy those longings. At the end of the day, if you go through life long enough, it doesn't have to be that long, you're going to realize there's still longing in your heart, no matter how good your life is, no matter how good your spouse is, no matter how good your job is, no matter how well you live your life, no matter how much money you make, there's still longings in your life. I know that's true for you. And I'm, I think of the quote that C.S. Lewis said when he said this, If I find myself in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I'm made for another world. If you find longings in your life that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world, that's because you're not made for this world. Now, C.S. Lewis had a, a beautiful way of painting a picture um, to just show us that we're, we're made for something more than this life. Uh, we're made for a next life. So when people and possessions and good performance and pleasures don't satisfy the longings in your soul, that means you're made for another world. Uh, another... Um, A song that I think of with lyrics that point to this same idea, it says this, What if the greatest disappointments and the achings of this life are a revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? There's hungers and thirsts in our life that this world will not satisfy. And let this meal be a reminder of that. That as as you feel a a pit in your stomach when you're hungry, like you haven't eaten for a day, um, and you just feel that hunger inside, know that just as this, a meal like this would satisfy your soul or satisfy your hunger, the meal that we're going to eat with the Lord will satisfy our souls, right? It's going to satisfy our souls for all eternity. So number one, the longings of this life are going to be satisfied. Number two, the pains of, this, of a death are relieved. In verse seven, it says, and he will swallow up on the mountain uh, on this mountain, the covering that has cast over all peoples, the veil spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The re- death is a reality that we've all come to know. It's been said that the only two sure things in life are death and taxes, and we know people can evade taxes if they're good enough. So death is really the only sure thing in life. It's the only equalizer of all things. 
It's the great equalizer, and everybody's going to face death at some point. It doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're male or if you're female, if you're a businesswoman or a bum, white collar, blue collar, no collar at all. Every country, every nationality, everyone will face death. This covering that is cast over all peoples, this veil that is spread over all nations that the Bible mentions right here. I think we'd all agree that there's something worse than death at times. It's watching a loved one experience death. Watching someone that means so much to you pass away. No matter the circumstances, death hurts us. And it's tragic. Whether it's somebody that's lived a long, well-lived life and they die peacefully in their sleep. Or if it's somebody who's young and they die tragically, it still hurts no matter what. And when death happens, it takes its pound of flesh and we feel it, we're wounded, and we're scarred. If you could see death, death would kind of be like a thick fog. That you can't see through but touches everything in sight. Nothing can hide from it and everything's affected by it. But in this passage, it not only speaks of the widespread effect of death, but it also speaks of the end of death as well. It says that death's going to be swallowed up. A future when God's people will no longer have to face death at all. When all humans will come face to face with Jesus Those who trust in him will not have to experience that second death. When Jesus died, he rose from the grave and he swallowed up death. When Jesus was eating this last meal with his disciples, he says that he would not drink the fruit of the vine until the day when he drinks it anew in his father's kingdom. So even as he faced the most unjust death in history, he knew death would not be his end. Death would not have the last word. Jesus defeated death by dying, and now he gives eternal life by living. Not only did he die for our sins, he rose from the dead. John Owen, that famous Puritan, wrote a a, a book called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. What a beautiful title. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. So this passage in Isaiah points forward to Christ's death when he swallowed up all of our sin and shame, and he rose again victoriously. And so in that That final state, when we eat this meal again with the Lord, death, the pains of death, are going to be relieved. Number three, the stains of sin are going to be removed. Not only does it say he'll swallow up death in this passage, it also says that he's going to wipe away all the tears from our faces and the reproach from all peoples. He's going to take away from the earth, from from his people. The Israelites face reproach. Reproach is like disgrace or or, um, just... uh, what shame that you feel um, from a sin that you've committed, something you've done. The Israelites felt shame and reproach from the way that they rebelled against the Lord. The Lord had told them, don't commit idolatry. Don't worship other things like you're supposed to worship me. And he warned them, stay away from the peoples around you because they're going to pull you into that idolatry, pull you into worship of other things. They didn't listen. They did worship other things and they feel that reproach. They're sent into exile multiple times for their idolatry. Um, Our reproach was over this people. And as you can imagine, they longed to have that reproach removed, that mark of sin taken away from them. Because sin brings death and shame. And it's hard to live with, with shame and reproach and disgrace. It's hard to live with that. It's hard to live with the, the mistakes we've made and the sins that remain. Sin is kind of like uh, stains or scars or a hole in the drywall. Because sin leaves a mark. We all have something that we have a mark on in our life, right? I'm guessing all of us have that mark of sin in our lives. 
Right? You get that brand new shirt and for some reason uh, you wear it on that date with your spouse and you choose to go to Olive Garden and for some reason you pick the spaghetti and for some reason it falls all over that brand new shirt. Right, Stain. That greasy tomato sauce will not come out. Now every time you wear that shirt, you're reminded of that meal you had and how great the meal was but how dumb it was to wear that shirt. And you don't throw the shirt away because you paid too much for it. And so it just sits there in your closet and you look at it. And every time you pick a different shirt, you're reminded, man, I shouldn't have eaten that spaghetti. Or what about a scar? You probably have a scar on your body that has a mark. Maybe it's from sports. Maybe it's a time you tried to grab the cookies out of the oven, but the oven mitt wasn't over all of your fingers. So you burnt your finger. Maybe it's a time you slipped on a banana peel and scraped your knee on the unforgiving pavement. Whatever it is, you've probably got a scar on your body. And that scar lingers and it reminds you of that moment you got hurt. Or what about drywall? Anybody have a hole in drywall? I know I did when I was a kid. I had my friends over, and uh, we were all WWF fans. That's Worldwide uh, Wrestling Federation, for those of you that don't know. And we were practicing to become professional wrestlers. Me and some friends were over staying the night. My mom multiple times told us, hey, stop. You guys are being too rough. Hey, stop. You're being too loud. Well, all of a sudden... Ten-year-old boys and wrestling don't mix well with drywall. One of us falls, trips, tries to catch ourselves on the wall, and our hand goes through the drywall. And then on that drywall was a hole that didn't get repaired, and it was a reminder. What made it worse is it was right by my door to my room. So every time I left my room, every single time, I have to walk by that drywall and be reminded that was a mistake I made. I had to live with that mistake moment after moment, day after day, every time I left my room. And I'm guessing some of us, actually I'm going to rephrase that, I know all of us have a a drywall hole in our life, a mistake that we've made that we live with, and we walk by it every day and we think, man, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I would have made a better decision. I wish I wouldn't have gone there. I wish I wouldn't have talked to them, whatever that might be. I wish I wouldn't have said that on social media. Whatever that might be, whatever that sin is in your life that you look back at and with regret, it sits and it lingers and it's hard to live with. It's hard to keep looking at that. Even when you're a believer, even when you've trusted in Christ, that still makes it hard to live with that reproach and that stain in your life, that scar from that moment, that hole in the drywall. But when God sees that reproach, his desire and his longing is to take it from you. That's what this passage says. It says he takes the reproach from his peoples. When Christ died on the cross, he paid for your sins. And when you trust in Christ, you are forgiven. It's stamped on your permanent record, forgiven, debt paid. But those pains still linger, right? We don't, we don't forget that sin. Even if the Lord chooses not to hold it against us, we still remember it. But on that day, when we eat this meal with Christ again, we're, we're not going to be looking back at the sins we've committed. And we'll feel no regret for those things. The reproach of those things will be removed from us fully and finally. And we'll have that weight fully taken off of our shoulders. Even though it's kind of taken off now, right? Remember the snowball. Jesus has paid for your sins and it's forgiven. But on that day when we eat this meal again with him, our, our reproach will fully and finally be taken away. So when you take this meal in a few moments, remember, today your sins are forgiven. But on that day, your reproach is going to be removed forever. And you'll never have to deal with it ever again. 
Another point that we need to make here is that the enemies of God are defeated. It mentions here that Moab will be trampled down. There's, there's enemies in our life, people and forces that are pushed against the Lord. All the injustices that we see, those things will finally be taken away. The enemies of God will be defeated. And then finally, the people of God will be rejoicing. Verse 9, behold, this is our God who we waited for. Uh, He has come to save us. This is a celebration at the end of this passage. And are you pumped for that? Does that make you excited that one day Christ will return, the clouds will spread, and he'll bring his people home, defeat all evil, destroy our sin, death will be no more? Does that make you excited? I know it makes me excited, but I don't show it as often as I should, right? Uh, If you sit down and you watch me on a, on a Sunday morning or when I'm reading my Bible or whatever, you'd say, okay, he's kind of bored. But you watch me watch a Dallas Cowboy football game when they're in the Super Bowl this year, you better guarantee I'm going to be excited, right? Man, I wish we could flip those things, right? Uh, why do we care so much about a silly game with a bunch of dudes that we don't even know and it changes our whole disposition for a week if it doesn't turn out right? Yet... We talk about the glories of the Lord and what he's done and he's going to do for us. And we get super bored doing it, right? Man, I wish that wasn't the case. When we eat this meal today, a lot of times this meal is very somber. Hey, listen to this song. Think about your life. What have you done wrong this week that you need to forgive uh, before you take this meal? But I want you to be encouraged today. This is a celebration. This is a celebratory meal. Um, It's an anticipation of the celebration we're going to celebrate with Christ one day. uh, When we slide our knees under his table. When we're invited to the king's castle uh, to have a meal with him. And all these things we've talked about are going to be a reality. That's a celebration. That's something to celebrate this morning. Um, So as we end our time here today, I I want to point out one last thing. Notice the word all in this passage. It says all peoples, all peoples, all nations, all faces, all earth, all the earth. All is a focus in this passage, meaning this meal that we're going to eat, uh, this salvation that the Lord offers is open for all peoples. There's no type of person that's going to be left out from this meal. It doesn't matter what nationality you're from. doesn't matter what gender you are. doesn't matter how much money you have. This is an offer to all people. Salvation is an offer to all people, yet it's applied to God's people, right? This salvation is applied specifically to God's people, those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. In this passage, we see it applying to the Israelites, not to the Moabites, those who are rebelling. And we think of our setting in our church age, the sacrifice of Christ is open for everybody. Anybody who trusts in the Lord can have salvation, but only those who have trusted in the Lord receive salvation. So this meal is, is, is a picture of that as well. This morning, anybody who's a part of the universal church, anybody who's turned from their sins and trusted in Christ for salvation is welcome to have this meal here this morning. Uh, is welcome to take of the bread and the cup. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know what, I haven't turned from my sins. I haven't trusted in Christ. I wouldn't declare myself a believer. Well, this meal is not for you. Not to say we don't want you to have this meal, but just as a reminder to say, I need to be trusting in Christ. I need to be turning from my sins and trusting in him. Salvation available for all people, applied to God's people. You can be part of God's people. All of us can be part of God's people.